Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy, howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. The birds are chirping this morning. It is warm outside, and spring is on its way. And let me tell you, I cannot wait. Now, this past week was total mayhem around here. I had uh, so many projects that had to get done, including replacing the pressure tank on the well. And all that turned out great, and I'm glad that is behind me. And everything's looking up for the coming week. In fact, this coming week, have a really special musical event. I get to hear Jackson my son, who is 11, play the cello with his orchestra tonight. It's tonight, now that I'm thinking about it, tonight in Columbus, Georgia. So I am really excited to hear those, <clears throat> hear those kids play that, their instruments. I'll give you a report next week, just a little short report, you know, the proud papa thing. Assuming they, they play pretty well. I, I, I was joking with him. I said, so what are you going to play tonight? Are you going to play hot cross buns? He says, no. Oh, you won't believe it. What we're going to play tonight is a complete surprise. So I am looking forward to this. All right. So the other day, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I probably waste a lot of time listening to podcasts, as you may as well. So I listen to these other podcasts, and I hear this guy, Clark Wyatt, on the Picky Fingers Banjo podcast. And let me tell you, this guy, he gets it. And he started talking about, he started talking about ear training. And a little, you know, as that moment of deja vu came up, where I thought, you know what? I've spent a lot of time talking about ear training. And a lot of what this guy is saying sounds exactly like what I've said. Not that he got it from me. I mean, it's out there. And musicians talk a lot about ear training. And that's what I'm going to talk about today in this podcast. I, too, am going to throw in my two cents worth on ear training and why I think it is so incredibly valuable. It really separates the men from the boys, as they say. The better you, the better you train your ear, the better musician you'll be. So I'm going to talk about that, but before we do that, let me grab my iPod here. <clears throat> oh, and by the way, be sure to listen to the Picky Fingers Banjo podcast, Keith Billick's podcast. I interviewed him on this show. We kind of did a, a double. We interviewed each other and put it out on both shows. Um, if you're a banjo player, scope it out. He's doing yeoman's work and uh, support him. And definitely listen to Clark Wyatt. Of uh, He's got a duo called Betsy and Clark. And he plays in the short round string band. <laughs> I've known a lot of um, over-the-hill banjo pickers who are short and round. I'm doing my best to not be one of them. Um, 
Okay, so I want to read you the first favor email that I got. If you were listening and you, I, you know, I, I noticed that some people are way behind, you know, there's 150 some episodes and I know there are people listening to episode 18 today and 19. I see the numbers. So it's going to be a while before they get up to this latest bonus episode. And you who are addicted and listen to every episode as soon as they come out, you heard the bonus episode where I said, hey, do me a favor. Send me an email. Tell me about yourself. Introduce yourself to me and to the other podcast listeners. And I said I would read them out on the air unless you specifically forbid me. So I want to read this one. This is the first one I got. And I've received quite a few of them. You know, it's, I'm torn between thinking I've gotten a lot of them or, man, nobody's, nobody's responding. Because I see how many people listen to that episode and I can very quickly calculate the ratio, the percentage of listeners who actually did what I requested, which was... A very simple request to send me an email. How hard is that? Um, so I would like to dispel the commonly held myth that uh, you've, you've heard. <laughs> you know, ask and ye shall receive. Folks, it ain't true. Asking is not necessarily going to cause you to receive. I mean, I will say this about ask and ye shall receive you're a lot more likely to receive if you ask. Maybe it got lost in translation somewhere in 1600s. But ask and ye shall receive is, just sounds like cause and effect and is not true. I would say ask and you may receive. Don't ask and you probably won't. But you still might. You know, there is that chance versus... Um, cause and effect. Okay. I'm going to read you the first one that I got, and I've got a little stockpile of these that have come in. And to those of you who have written me the email with favor in the subject line and wrote your little story, I appreciate you all. And I am reading them as they come in, but I'm not responding to them. I'm just going to read them on the air over the course of time. So, in today's episode, I just want to read the very first one, you know, Grayson Lieburn, and I'm probably pronouncing Grayson Lieburn's last name incorrectly because it is spelled L-E-Y-B-O-U-R-N-E. So my ignorant self says it could be Lieburn, it could be Laburn, or Lieburn. I don't know. So, Grayson, uh, make a little recording of how to, how to properly pronounce your name. Speaking of properly pronouncing names, my last name is Laird. It's not complicated. It's, it's, there are no, there's no doubt how to pronounce Laird. You look at it, it's L-A-I-R-D. And we're all familiar with the word air. And it's right there in the middle, air. So you say air, you put an L in front of it, and you get lair, and then you just chunk a D on the end, laird. 
but you would not believe the countless times, you know, I've been sitting in a waiting room and I hear someone, you know, the nurse comes into the room and says, Mr. Larid, Mr. Larid. I'm like, totally silent. There's no Mr. Larid here. Oh man, I've heard all kind of stuff. Lard. I get that one a lot. What is that? You can't see that eye. It's sitting right there in the middle with a dot over it to draw attention to it. Mr. Lard, Mr. Larid, give me a break, people. Get your glasses checked. It's not complicated, but I will say Grayson's last name, Lieburn. I'm probably wrong, Grayson. Forgive me. Grayson, I get, you know, that's Lieburn, Lieburn, Laburn. Anyway, Grayson, forgive me for fouling up your name. Maybe I got it right. I don't know. So here's Grayson's email to me and to all of you because he did not put in all caps, do not read this. So here we go. Dear Brad, I am a 30-year-old multi-instrumentalist. Banjo, guitar, fiddle, mandolin, bass, Irish flute, whistle, piano, classical voice in Greensboro, North Carolina. This guy sounds sort of like me. I got instruments everywhere and I can't, I can never make up my mind what I want to be playing. You know, maybe it's the bagpipes, maybe it's the accordion, the pedal steel, the lap steel. So I understand your sickness, Grayson, but I'll tell you what, as David Ellis made clear in his the first interview I ever did on the show, the, the handiness of being a multi-instrumentalist when you want to get a gig. But, you know, I think Grayson is like so many people in music. They just love music. And so they like to experiment and try lots of ways of creating music. Now, continuing with Grayson's email, and I will try not to interrupt myself as we proceed here. We spoke earlier about that Bill Millsap's record you may remember. So I'm going to interrupt here and say, I do remember that, Grayson. When your email came in, I didn't immediately think of that. In other words, I didn't like have your name attached to that, but I totally remember that. See, some of you listeners may not know that I maintain dozens of side conversations with listeners and not only listeners, but visitors to my website, people are using my material. I've always felt like, you know, if somebody took the time to write me a letter, send me a postcard, <laughs> that I should take the time to respond. That might take a while, but I, I really hold that to be a point of honor, you might say. Now, I do not respond to spam emails, and I'll be honest, a few times I've received an email where I felt like the person just didn't put the necessary time and thought into it, and a reciprocal amount of thought and time went into my reply. I've had people send me a four-word email, too lazy even to hit the shift key to capitalize, the, you know, no punctuation, and not an, too few words to explain what they're even saying. So 
If you do right, take the time like Grayson did and take your time. Explain yourself clearly and please capitalize and use punctuation. It makes it so much easier. All right. But I do remember that Bill Millsap's record. In fact, if I can locate it here, I'm going to play a little snatch off of that record so that you'll know what we're talking about. But let me just skip aside. When, when Grayson and I were having this little conversation, I said, I got, I've got that album. I, you know, I don't remember the exact conversation. I, I will have to pull that back up. But the basic gist of it is, Bill Millsaps was John Hartford's cousin. And you all know John Hartford. And John played on the record. Uh, Bill made a record. And John was on it and wrote uh, the liner notes for the, for the record. And I took a photograph of the back of that record and sent it to Grayson. And I just want to read you John Hartford's, this is on official John Hartford stationery. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And handwritten. And it says, uh, the letterhead is printed, John Hartford Music. P.O. Box 443, Madison, Tennessee, 37116. And now we go to handwriting. In script, of course. 1890. Dear Cousin, Your album turned out real well. I listened to it a lot, especially in the car. It's got that good old-time sound. Some people get it, some people don't, and you do. Hope to see you soon, some, or hope to see you sometime soon. John Cowan Hartford, such as it is. So that, <laughs> I took that picture and sent it to Grayson. So yeah, Grayson, I do remember that. And you gotta realize, folks, sitting down and writing a letter is a great thing to do. I recently wrote my cousin a letter. Speaking to John Hartford's cousin, I wrote my cousin Pam a letter. And I took the time, two-pager, script. I haven't seen her in 20 years. And I thought it might just surprise her to get a letter from her cousin. So I told her all about what, what all was going on. And about a month later, I got a letter back, handwritten in script from my cousin Pam. Pamela Hansen, up in Chesterton, Indiana. And so now I owe her a letter. Let me go back to Grayson's letter and complete this thing. I play bluegrass, old time, Irish trad, and classical music. I work as a choir director, private lessons teacher, fiddler, banjoist, guitarist, music engraver, arranger, pit orchestra player, etc. And it's funny how many of those things on that list I have also done. Not all of them. Never played Irish trad. And I've done very few gigs as a guitarist. But I've played in a pit orchestra, tooting the French horn, 
in the Miss Clayton County pageants for a couple of years. Back to Grayson's letter. I have been singing and playing music all my life, predominantly classical and rock music. Discovered the Punch Brothers halfway through a music degree and was blown away by the capacity for expression a string band ensemble is capable of. And then got bit by the banjo bug, learned three-finger style, and there was a bigger old-time scene locally, so I decided to learn to play fiddle and got interested in fiddle tunes generally, so I try to play lots of them on various instruments. I live with one foot in the art music world and another in the traditional music world. I enjoy your podcasts and appreciate the breadth of musical knowledge. Thanks, Grayson. <laughs> I'm, I appreciate you noticing. No, I'm just kidding. Keep up the good work, Grayson. So this is what I'm talking about. Go back and listen to that recent bonus episode. Introduce yourself to me and to the other listeners. All right, I've burned up 18 minutes already, so let's talk ear training. What is ear training? I've seen courses in ear training sold on you know, way before the internet. You could buy a course in ear training. And what was it? And... Many of these courses revolve around the idea of hearing tones, pitches, notes, hearing notes played. I'm just going to use the word notes. Hearing notes and being able to name the note or name the interval or name the chord. Like if I play you a C major chord, then you know it's a major chord. You might not know it's C, because that you know now we're getting into that perfect pitch discussion. But it's about hearing an interval. When you hear the first two notes of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, I'm not going to sing it for you. I would not punish you like that. Think Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and think of the first note, some, and then where. Can you name that interval? What is that interval called? I'll tell you, it's an octave. There's an octave jump at the beginning of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. What about Here Comes the Bride? You sing, Here Comes the Bride. Okay, what is that interval? Da, 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 da. That's a fourth. So that's what I'm talking about. That's what many of these... Um, traditional ear training and certainly classical ear training courses and this is what they're about. Can you name the interval? Can you recognize a fifth? Can you recognize a sixth when you hear it? Can you recognize a ninth? How about a thirteenth? How's about a minor triad or an augmented chord. And being able to identify those things is what is traditionally sold as ear training. Ah, well, I hear that. That's a fifth, you know. Like when your bass player is going, dum, 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 dum. He's playing a fifth. 
which by the way is also a fourth if you invert it and raise one note an octave. But here's where I have a problem with that style of ear training, is that it doesn't do you a bit of good in terms of your playing to be able to name it. The names don't matter. They only matter when you want to communicate that to someone else. So if I say, when I sing the root, you sing the fifth. And you and I both know what a fifth is, then that is useful. But if I'm just hearing some music and I'm hearing fifths, I could file that away under the, you know, in, throw it in the basket called stuff I heard that sounded like a fifth or not. I mean, the, what I'm saying is the names are useful addendums to the actual sensation of the sounds. So when I teach or attempt to teach ear training to students, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it's it's not playing Jeopardy where you know the idea of ear training is to hear something and be able to give the correct answer. I look at ear training differently and more like the guy on Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, Clark. He was talking this same way. And here's the way I like to think of ear training. Now, I, by the way, I am not saying it is not valuable, not a useful use of your time to attempt to learn something about intervals and chords and to be able to recognize them and also correctly name them. That is a skill worth pursuing. But it's very different than the kind of ear training I'm talking about here. And that is, I used to do this with students. I would, you know, a lot of times at a lesson, we're sitting facing each other. I've got my mandolin, you've got your mandolin. And I would say, all right, Billy Bob, stand up and turn around, face away from me so you cannot see me. And I'm going to play a note on my mandolin, and I want you to play the same note. I'll just play it a few times. Here we go. Doom, 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 doom. And I hear dang, dong, ding, dong, dong, all over the place. And eventually, Billy Bob homes in on the note. He got it. That is ear training. That's what I'm talking about. To be able to hear something and repeat it. It's the same thing we did as a child when we learned how to speak. A little bit different because it wasn't so concerned with pitch. But, but the first step of ear training is to become better at hearing a pitch and being able to play it or sing it back. In other words, can you match a note, a tone, a pitch? And here's how that works. First, you hear it. Second, you take a guess on your instrument or with your voice and you attempt to match it. And then you judge if it in fact matched. So you hear it, you 
We'll just, we'll just talk about playing it instead of singing it. You hear a note. You attempt to play that note by taking a guess. And then you decide, is it correct or not? Now, if I had a student, if let's say I was playing my open D string on the mandolin and they have their back to me and it takes them 15 minutes to eventually play a note that they judge matched my note for them to finally get on it. And then they continued on moving to other notes, even though they were clearly matching. Let's say I'm, now we're not talking about note memory here where I'm going to play it once and you got to remember it while you fiddle around and find it. That's, that's a skill too. The memory, because if you can't remember it, how in the world are you going to repeat it? If you can't remember how happy birthday goes, how in the world are you going to sing it? Same goes for Foggy Mountain Breakdown or a Punch Brothers instrumental. So memory is involved, but you build memory by exercising your ear. I'll just, I'm just going to call it your ear, and it's more than your ear. It is clearly your ear, your brain, and your hands, which plays the instrument. But let's just talk only about play. I'm playing a note, and I want to hear you play the same note. And you can't look at me, so you can't, like, watching my videos, and you see I'm putting my f ring finger on the fifth fret of the third string, and I'm probably even saying that. Put your ring finger on the fifth fret of the third string and play a downstroke. You're not getting those clues. If I just, I, I think sometimes that I might do a whole new set of mandolin instruction videos. I might even do it for banjo where I don't talk. I simply play. I'm going to play something and you play it. And when you have successfully played what I played, simply by observing and hearing, then hit play and move along. I may do that. I'm sure I'd sell a million of those, wouldn't I? People like it handed to them on a silver platter, you know. Give me the tab. Um, which, you know, all that's good. Tab and notation is just a memory aid. It is to help you remember things that, you know, got all confused in your brain when you went to that festival and you heard all that music and everything got all scrambled up and then you can go back to the tab and you go, oh yeah. So that's how that goes. All right, so this, back to ear training, I am so bad about digressing. At its most simple, raw level, you hear a pitch, you take a guess, at where, how to produce that note on your instrument, and you play it, and then you judge, you compare your note to the note you're hearing, and I would play the note repeatedly. So I would sit there going, doing, 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 so that they don't have to remember it. You know, I'm just going to continuously play the note until they find it. So you do that, you guess, and you miss, and you, you guess again, and you miss, and you guess again, and you miss. That's ear training. You are training your ear to a number of things. First of all, you're 
training your brain to notice whether you matched. Because, you know, I was telling you about the person that they would play the correct note and then they would move on as if they didn't even know they played the correct note. I don't know that there's any hope for that person musically. I mean, they might learn to be able to play by just mechanics and just going by tabs and notes and and it may not actually involve their ear and that my guess would be that that person would probably never amount to much as a musician. But I think the average person can do this, that you can tell when you finally hit the correct note. I'm playing D D D D D D and you go D do 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 and you find it and you feel good because you match the pitch. You just trained your ear and the mechanics of your body to be able to, to do this stuff. And it's so important. Uh, let me not sidetrack into why it's so important right now. But when you're making that decision, you're hearing a note and you're playing your note you're asking yourself these questions. Am I on the right pitch already? Because if you are, you don't need to move. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Next question you will ask, if, if it's no to that question, are you too high or are you too low? You'd be amazed how many people cannot tell if they're too high or too low. I mean, that seems so rudimentary. But with a little practice, you can do it. Some people are naturally very good at it, and some people are not, and it takes a little more work, but you will learn it. And that is the first question. If you're if you decided that your your note is not correct, you must ask. Am I too high or am I too low? And then the second question, which isn't quite as important, is by how much am I too high or too low? Am I a lot high, way high, a little high, just a half step high? How low am I? Oh man, I'm way too low. Come up. I mean, that's the, that's, should be your, your response. I play a note, you play a note, and you say, oh, man, I'm too low. Well, come up. How far do you come up? So let's say your next attempt, you're, you're getting closer to the target. And you're still hearing the original, my note. And you're zeroing in on it. You know, it's kind of like tracers, you know. Like a tail gunner. <laughs> and a B-29. You're, you're seeing how far you're missing, so you're moving towards the target. That's what you need to learn to do. I, to give you an, an idea of how important I think this is, um, I, I want to read you a little something out of one of my books, and I do not mean this to be a sales pitch for this book, Although, if you're a mandolin player and you don't have this book, I suggest that you get it. It's called Mandolin Masterclass. So, I mean, yeah, I am trying to sell the books. But I'm also giving away what is written here on page 26 and 27 of the book, which is a downloadable ebook. 
Let me just read you um, some of what I'm talking about, why this is important. And it gets to playing the melody. You know, if you hear some bluegrass hot shot jamming and playing these hot licks and just going crazy, and it is so impressive. And maybe they're doing all of that over a relatively simple song. Let's say a tune like Salty Dog. And this could be you. The band's playing Salty Dog. The lead singer sings the melody to Salty Dog, and then you come in with your solo. I'm attempting to make the case here that the best thing you can begin with is to play or at least have the melody in mind as you take off on your insanity solo. At least prove to the audience, to the listener, that you can actually play Salty Dog, that melody, because that's the song you're playing. And so many beginners and so many intermediates get in this world, this mindset of thinking about their solos only in terms of the chord progression. And if you're a bass player and you don't take solos, I want you thinking about the chord progression. And there is no harm in thinking about the chord progression as you play your melody. You're either the exact melody of the tune or the song or your improvised melody. But your improvisation will be much more musical if it is a melody. What you are playing is also a melody that is somehow related to the original melody and that fits the chord progression. The art of improvisation is many, many different things. And I talk about these in this book, Madeline Masterclass. I talk about the different ways of looking at improv, thinking of improv, the concepts. But to me, by far the best improvisation is where you are inventing a new melody or a variation of the melody. So let me just read you from my book. And you won't have to, when you, when and if you buy the book, or if you have the book and you haven't read it in a while, get it out. This thing's been out since 2000. When did I do this? 2005. It's been out a long time. And, you know, it may be sitting over on your shelf if you have one of the print editions, which I don't do anymore. Um, don't have the print versions anymore, although I have a copy. I got my one copy. But today you can just download it. But you may have skimmed through it. You may have been maybe not ready for the, what we're talking about today. You know, the person at their first lesson is probably not ready for what we're talking about today. And you may have skimmed over this. Go back, turn to page 26, and here's what I say in the book. I'm just quoting myself. The little heading says, Playing the Melody. You'll hear me rustling papers a little bit. There is something that people tend to forget when improvising. 
but the best improvisers give the melody great respect. You should too. Improvising begins and ends with the melody. After all, songs start with a melody, a tune. Chords are added to the melody to enhance the melody, and it is the melody that determines the chords. Or your impression of the melody. There are optional ways of harmonizing using chords, but it begins with the melody. Next paragraph. But many improvisers concern themselves more with the chords than with the melody. I have done that up to this point in this book, and we're on page 26. We have looked at which scales and patterns are safe against various chord progressions. But have we forgotten the melody? Let's not. Honestly, in many bluegrass songs, especially instrumentals and banjo instrumentals in particular, the melody is hard to determine. Can you hum the tune to Foggy Mountain Breakdown? The melody of the song is so buried in a cascade of rippling notes that it is hard to decide what notes comprise the melody. So when playing a song like Foggy Mountain Breakdown on a fiddle or mandolin, it becomes impossible to play all of the notes of the banjo version. So we reduce the song to the notes that seem to stick out the most and the chords that we hear. This type of song with one with a vague melody is an excellent candidate for playing pattern-oriented licks without worrying too much about the melody. But what about a song like Salty Dog? If we listen to the banjo break, it seems as complicated as Foggy Mountain Breakdown. But go back and listen to the singer. There is a melody. When you take a solo on Salty Dog, do you play the melody? Do you hint around at the melody notes while you jump all over the fingerboard? Do you strongly play a melody and just add a few fills here and there? Or do you tend to just play things that work with those chords? Next page, page 27. Playing the melody, if you can figure out what it is, Psst, that's ear training. Let me read that again. Playing the melody, if you can figure out what it is, that's ear training, is always a good foundation for improvising. Playing melodies that you hear is challenging. Inserting this. And learning to do it is improved by ear training. I didn't say that in the book. I'm saying that now. Next sentence. Being able to repeat back a musical phrase that you heard is a talent worth developing. Honestly, most people avoid playing the melody because they can't instinctively find the melody notes on their instrument. In other words, most people fall back on playing something simply because they can't figure out how to play the melody because they haven't spent enough time working on ear training. Now, that's me talking. That's not in the book. 
back to the book, but there are ways of learning to do it and do it better and better over time if you work at it. The process is called ear training. I'll just read you the little section here on ear training. Try this experiment. Get your mandolin and go ring your front doorbell. Ding dong. Now, play back the notes you just heard. Ding dong. Did you hit the right notes? Ring the doorbell again. Ding dong. Now, sing those notes. Could you sing them? You probably could sing them just fine, I bet. Now, find them on the mandolin. Did you get them this time? Or did you have to fish around for the notes? Let me stop right here. Ear training speeds up the fishing around process and develops your ability to, um, instinctively in air quotes, instinctively find the notes. Next paragraph, back in master class. The ability to hear a musical phrase and repeat it back indicates that you are familiar with the fingerboard and the relative sound and distance between intervals of notes. Remember I said, first you gotta decide, is it correct? Then you gotta decide, are you too high or too low? And then by how much, how far, how far away from the target are you? Let me just read that again. The ability to hear a musical phrase and repeat it back indicates that you are familiar with the fingerboard and the relative sound and distance between intervals of notes. And more importantly, the ability to hear a musical phrase and then play it on the instrument means that you will be able to hear things in your own head and then play them. So let me stop and explain a little bit about that. You might get the impression that all this monkey, suit, uh, monkey see, monkey do imitation is about learning to imitate. So you hear me play the lick, the jazz lick. And then I say, now you play it. Well, you got to find the note I started on. You got to play that whole series of notes. Can you do it? And you might get the impression that your goal is to be able to imitate other people. And certainly that is a huge part of music. Which of you mandolin players don't wish you could imitate Sam Bush? Which of you banjo players wish that you could imitate Bela Fleck? Pick your hero. <laughs> of course we want to be able to imitate, but we also want to be able to create. So when you hear something in your head, can you find it? Can you play what you're hearing in your own mind? And the better you become at that, the better creator of music you will become. Back to the book, next paragraph. Learning to do this better will mean you can hear unfamiliar songs and be able to play them with fewer errors. And you will be able to hear things in your own head and play them. Rather than just jumping around from note to note, and listening to what came out. Diligent and constant work in ear training development is one of the surest ways to improve 
your musicianship. To practice ear training, try the audio exercises on the CD explained in the back of the book and try the following ideas. And I go on to more pages of ideas of ways to learn to do, to become better, to train your ear. That's what I'm trying to say. How do you do this? Well, let me just play you a little track here. There are some tracks I included with Mandela Masterclass. They can be used with any instrument. And I'm just going to play you a bit of, let's, of what track is it? Let's, let's, let's see. I included these tracks with the book um, really as an example. So that you could try this ear training methodology and then you could make up your own stuff. Because here's the deal. If I sit down and play, let's say I play a random note on the piano and then you find it on your instrument and you play it. Okay, now I play another random note and you find it. If, if, if we did this for half an hour a day and I played the exact same sequence of so-called random notes every day, eventually you would learn you know, well, we did C twice, then I think he went to F, and then he went to a B flat. You know, you'd eventually learn, and it wouldn't be random anymore. This only works if it's random or unfamiliar to you. If we sit down and I play Happy Birthday, and you play it back, and you don't do so well on Monday, and then on Tuesday I play Happy Birthday, and you play it back pretty well, and then on Wednesday you're nailing it, on Thursday we need to go to a different melody. And then once in a while, I'll sneak back and play Happy Birthday again. What I'm saying is ear training is not developed by doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over. Good technique is developed that way. But that won't help your ear training. So the tracks that I include, included and still include, they come as MP3s now, with Mantle Masterclass, the, there are a couple of example tracks for ear training. And let me flip to the back of the book so I can see my track list. Uh, da -da -da -da. Let's see, track. Okay, track seven, it's called. And I just want to read you the little instructions that come with the track seven. Ear training single notes. This is on page 65 for those of you with the book and you want to follow, follow along. Track 7, Ear Training Single Notes. This track is composed of a bunch of random notes played on the mandolin. Each note is repeated a number of times before switching to some other random note. The idea here is to find the note that is being played and play along with the track. Obviously, you will miss the first note, perhaps two or three, as you attempt to find the matching note on your mandolin. This sort of exercise will help you begin to think, think notes and then play them. For more information on ear training ideas, see the text beginning on page 27. That's what I just read you. Eventually, you will memorize this track and it will no longer serve any useful function as an ear training tool. This track should give you the basic idea 
so you can make your own recordings of random notes long enough and random enough so that they cannot be memorized easily that you can play along with for practice. In addition, you get you can get other instrument players to play you random notes and try to do what they are doing. Another thing you can do with the track once you get it get pretty good at finding the notes early is to as soon as you are on the same note play an arpeggio beginning on that random note while that note repeats. I think on that I think on that track I haven't listed we're going to list it in just a minute. I'm going to play you some of it here and you can just grab your instrument and attempt to do what I'm talking about along with this track 7. Uh, but I think I played each note eight times. Might have been 16. Could have been four. I think eight times. So I also say in here for instructions on how to use a track. Another thing you can do with a track, once you get pretty good at finding the notes early, is to, as soon as you are on the same note, play an arpeggio beginning on that random note while the note repeats. As soon as the note changes, find the new note, and play the new arpeggio. You can do the same thing with chords, pentatonic scales beginning on that note, major scales, minor scales. So as you get better, at first it may take you all eight notes to find it. You're zeroing in, you're too high, you're too low, you're and you find it and boom, the note changes. But as you get better at finding it, while you're there, you can exercise the other parts of your brain and say, all right, I'm on the third fret of the third string. I'll play an arpeggio, da 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 back to that note, and then the note changes. Or I'm going to play a chord where that finger is the root of the chord. You see what I'm saying? There's a whole lot of ways, and I discuss many more ways you can use these tracks. And again, I'm not saying this track is the be-all, end-all, greatest ear training method in the world. Not just that one track. What I'm saying is, learn how this works and then do it yourself. Track eight. And now we're, we're moving on into advancing with ear training. Track eight is ear training note pairs. Let me read what I say about that track. This track is similar to track seven. However, this time the notes come in pairs. Each pair is repeated a number of times. So it's like da 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 da. I'm just playing two notes. Instead of one, you gotta find two. Once you get good at one, why not go to two? Back to the book. Each pair is repeated a number of times. Enough so you have a chance to find it and play it before I change notes. This sort of training will greatly increase your ability to hear a melody either through your ears or in your mind and be able to play it on your instrument. I hope these two tracks give you some ideas to get you started on ear training. So let's, uh, let's just hear a little bit of it here. The first one will be the single note track, Grab Your Instrument, Try to find the note I'm playing and play it. And I'm not going to play the entire track. I'm just going to play it. I don't know. 30 seconds of it. 
So here we go. This is a sample. Grab your instrument and see if you can play these notes. See how long it takes you to find them. And I don't care what instrument you play. If you're playing a banjo or a bass or hammered dulcimer, I don't care. Here we go. This is a little bit of single note, an example of single note ear training. Now, I'm assuming you did pretty well with that. Let's try the ear training note pairs. This is just random note pairs. But you can, after you listen to this, you'll realize that if you did this same track every day for a month, you would pretty soon memorize it. So you've got to generate random things. And I'll talk in a minute about how you can come up with lots of random things. So here, here's some ear training note pairs. And remember... I don't care if you can identify that. Oh, he went up a fifth. He went up a sharp, that's an augmented fifth, or that is a minor sixth. It's not important. It's interesting, and it's helpful to know what that interval is. But why put words in the middle of this? You don't really need them. We don't need to talk at all when we're playing music. Talking is useful. I'm talking to you, but you're not really going to improve your ear training by listening to this podcast. You're going to improve your ear training by going and doing it. So here we go. This is a little, just a part of track eight that comes with Madeline Masterclass, ear training note pairs. See if you can match the pairs. Here we go. some of you that may have been very easy for some of you more difficult remember that this ear training the, the methodology that I'm talking about 
begins with locating and matching a single pitch. Then, two notes. Two note pairs. Because if you think about it, every linear melody ever written was nothing but a long sequence of single notes. Or you could view a long, complicated melody as a bunch of two-note pairs. You play these two, then you play the next two, and then you play the next two. Or you could think of it in threes, or fours, or fives, or sixes, or whatever. Like when I do, you know, here comes the bride. It's four notes, dum, dum, da, dum. It's four notes, but I could say, well, that's four single notes. And I went from the second note to the third note, I did not change a pitch. From the third note to the fourth note, I did not change in pitch. But then the fifth note comes, da, da, and you got a whole nother thing. So you got, you can, you, know, you can put this in your mind as single notes or two note pairs or three or more. In other words, you can also practice this by as you develop your ability to locate and repeat what you hear, you can begin to copy musical phrases or what we bluegrassers like to call licks. You know, I have great admiration for somebody who could sit down with an Earl Scruggs record or a Ralph Stanley record and listen to it and learn to play that without a book. They are training their ears. It's easier with a book. I sell books. I teach from tablature. I use tablature. And the biggest reason I use it is because when I give the guy the lesson on Tuesday, when he comes home from work on Wednesday and gets the banjo out, he can't remember what I played. So the tablature says, well, he played this, you know, his first part of Cripple Creek. So paper is a memory tool. But I have a lot of admiration for someone willing to put the time in necessary to listen to Earl play that lick 5,000 times until you figure it out and get it yourself. Because in doing so, you're, you're learning to hear the note and find it on your own instrument. And that's going to make you a better player. Because Ultimately, you'll be able to hear things in your head and put them out through your instrument. So, back to the book, I gave a few ideas in here of, you know, other ways that you can exercise your ear training. It's, uh, it's on page 27 of the book. Be a parrot for ear training. Get a friend to play a piano or keyboard. Choose a key like C. Later, try other keys as well. Have your piano playing cohort play only the eight notes of the C major scale. Have the person begin by playing the low C followed by any other note. They might play C followed by D. Then you play them. You have some sense of orientation because you have both agreed to play in the key of C and your notes are limited to a choice of only eight. That's a lot different than your entire fingerboard. So you're just saying, I'm going to play these eight notes. So 
makes it a little easier when you're starting out. The piano player now plays C followed by G. Then you play them. Did you miss the G or nail it? And remember, you're doing this by ear. You're not watching his hands and you're not calling out the names and you're not looking at music, written music. You just get the person to sit down and play random notes, random note sequences. Have your patient piano player keep generating random two or three note sequences in any way they feel like, and you keep repeating them back like a parrot. If you miss one, have the person play the same sequence again until you play it correctly. If you don't have a piano playing friend who wants to do this, you can, let me say, it doesn't have to be a piano. It could be a banjo or a hurdy-gurdy. It doesn't matter what the instrument is. It could be the tin whistle. You don't really need a piano player. What you need is somebody to put the time in. But what I want to suggest to you is you can make these pseudo-random things yourself. You don't even have to know how to play a keyboard or a piano. Sit down, turn on the tape recorder, and start playing random notes. Maybe play each one four times slowly. It'll be fun. It'll be improvising. You just play these things and record an hour of it. And then turn the tape on, play it back, and do it on your instrument. Can you do it on your upright bass? If not, why not? You should be able to do it. On all these instruments, you got to be able to hear something and play it. Another thing, copy music from the TV. I'll just read you this paragraph. Sit in front of the TV which is generally a terrible idea for anybody who wants to play music well, and imitate commercial jingles or tune to the music video channels. You can tell I wrote this a long time ago. I don't even know if they have music video. Is MTV even a thing anymore? Probably not. They probably filled it up with reality TV shows. I don't know. I don't have a TV, so I don't, I'm, this is, I'm writing this based upon my past. Uh, don't sit there trying to play that... Don't sit there trying to play things that sound good with the melody. Try to play the real melody. When you finish, I suggest that you toss the TV into the nearest dumpster, as it, as it is the biggest time waster and brainwashing machine ever devised. Writing today, I would add in the smartphone to, to that list. I think every musician could improve their playing by 25% simply by junking their TV sets slash smartphone. In addition to improving their feelings of self-worth, their health, and their finances. Uh, another way to do this and a fun way is to get a CD of TV theme songs, turning the page, found in the back of most record stores, which pretty much don't even exist anymore. Learning to play these melodies is challenging, but extremely educational from an ear training standpoint. Try Andy Griffith, The Monsters, Hawaii Five-O, etc. The melodies are more complex and unexpected than the average bluegrass song. And if you can play the TV theme songs, the bluegrass tunes will come easily. And by that, I don't mean that bluegrass playing is not complicated. What I mean is the melodies of the songs, the thing, 
the line that the singer sings is usually not as complex as, let's say, the theme from the Jetsons. <laughs> Pull that up on your smartphone, listen to that, see if you can play that. And the book continues into how to embellish the melody and other things, but I think you get the idea. Remember the crux of this. You, you're trying to become a better guesstimator. You hear something and you guess where it is on your instrument or in your voice and you try to hit it. This is going to help your harmony singing. This is going to help your being able to play a respectable break to a song. When somebody just sang sitting on top of the world and they go and they look at you and they say, take it and you play something. Did it even resemble sitting on top of the world? And you just heard the guy sing it. You just heard him was in the spring on a sunny day. Can you find him notes on that mandolin? Da 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 da. That's where you start. Anything else you do should be embellishment or some improvement upon that melody. Don't just grab a double stop that you know, well, he's on a A chord, so I'm going to play this double stop and go dung, 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 dung. Look, I do it too. I know. We all do it. But can you play the melody? Try it. You might like it. And I can guarantee you, Granny sitting over in the chair, she's going to like it a whole lot more because she can recognize the tune. <laughs> you got it? All right. Work on your ear training, folks. Talk to you in the next podcast. No, by the way, otherwise my wife will give me a hard time. Be sure to visit my website, bradleylaird.com. And for those of you who enjoy this show, write me an email, put favor in the subject line. Tell me about it. Tell me about yourself. I'm going to read your little story on the air. And for those of you who want to chip in a little bit, you can do the following. You can chip in by tell somebody else about the show. Nominate me for some bluegrass award at IBMA or something. You could do that, you know. Um, podcaster of the year. So I don't even know if they do that. Um, tell somebody at your jam session. Print out the little mini flyers, which are found in some of the episodes. I got a little mini flyer you can print out four to a page and cut them up and hand them to your friends. Help me get some more listeners. If you got a little money in your pocket, a little jingle in your pocket, you can become a Patreon patron of the show. And you go to patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. And I occasionally put some little bonuses up there as a way of saying thanks for people who are chipping in a little dough to keep this show rolling. Or if you're more practical and you want to support the show, you can go to bradleylaird.com, wander around, Look at some of the many useful uh, instructional ebooks, videos, courses that I offer and buy one. You know, that, that would help the show too because it all goes in the same cigar box. All that money, all those millions and millions of dollars. I mean, <laughs> well, you know what I mean. All the money goes in the same pot. So if you're a mantle player and you haven't read Mantle Masterclass, I encourage you to do so. So that's it. Got my little plug in there. Y'all work on some ear training and uh, learn to play that melody. Talk to you in the next episode.
just say a few things about this album, this Bill Millsaps record. It's called The Good Things Outweigh the Bad. And you wouldn't believe this record. I mean, most of us have never heard of Bill Millsaps. But on this record, we have Kenny Baker, Josh Graves, John Hartford, Ricky Campbell, Roy Husky Jr., Ricky Birch, and Wilma Millsaps. And one of the coolest things on here, if you can dig up this record, it's on Adoram. It's API-L-1660. If you can dig up this record, and if you go to Will You Be Lonesome 2, that is the first tune on side one, you can hear Kenny Baker playing lead guitar. Everybody knows Kenny Baker is the great fiddle player, and you, you will hear him throughout this record. But on that tune, he plays lead guitar, and you've got to check it out. Bill Millsaps is the mandolin player and the lead vocalist that you hear throughout the record. Um, Josh Graves is playing the dobro on this record. John Hartford on banjo and fiddle here and there. He does fiddle on a couple of them, or I think one. And uh, Rick Campbell on guitar and singing, doing some singing. And Roy Husky Jr., you know, I listened to this one time on my old school-type uh, record player, you know, just a, that little portable thing, you know, the suitcase type, and I couldn't even hear the bass. I put it on the real stereo, and all of a sudden I'm like, holy cow, who is that on bass? Roy Husky Jr. That's an amazing record. And Ricky Birch did some singing on it, did tenor on one of the tunes. This is a very cool record, and it's amazing how much just really classic bluegrass is out there that people have never heard of. Yeah. 